Essay number two. Love, literature, lipstick, and lasagna. A disclaimer, this post does include some adult themes, so you should keep that in mind. It's cuffing season, apparently. Um, until recently, I just assumed that was a colloquial expression, but I recently discovered it's supposed to be an actual thing. Now, leaving out the sexual undertones, which I'm a lot less interested in, it's basically a time of the year in the winter months where single people tend to have a greater desire for companionship. It also overlaps with the holidays, too. November up through maybe Valentine's Day or so. Uh, so that probably contributes as well. Now, after stumbling upon some articles and doing some reading, I found the idea of cuffing season rather intriguing. I thought I'd make it the basis for something to write on, and as a result, here we are. Now, based on what I've read thus far, if I had to put a label on myself, maybe I'd characterize myself as a reluctant romantic. Now, let me be clear. I think love and romance are absolutely beautiful things, and indeed, marriage is one of God's greatest gifts to man. But there are at least two important caveats. First, I try not to get wrapped up in social norms. Now, I grew up down south, where it's not uncommon at all to be married by 24 or so. Uh, beyond that, I also grew up in church, where it's also not uncommon at all to marry quite young, whether it be 22, 21, 23, 24, take your pick. In that sense, my behavior is somewhat unorthodox, perhaps especially given the favorable ratio of men to women in most churches. And of course, I'm getting a little bit older. I'm 26 now. Um, everyone else is getting married and having babies, so why aren't you? It's kind of the way the conversation would go if somebody was, uh, you know, questioning me about what the heck I'm doing. I think subscribing to social norms are an easy way to end up living the life someone else wants you to live. One day you'll wake up in the middle of the night and realize that you have no idea who you really are. Rather, you've spent your entire life doing what's expected or encouraged of you. Now, that's no way to live. I think that's terrifying, in fact. Moreover, I don't think the easiest, excuse me, I think the easiest way to be dissatisfied is by comparing your life to a composite average of other people's experiences, which I'll call here a social norm. Is it any wonder then that everyone feels they should be making more money, live in a bigger house, and have such an enriching romantic relationship. No thanks. I'll pass on that. I try not to overemphasize social norms, romantic or otherwise. Now, the second reason I would perhaps characterize myself as a reluctant romantic is that I do value my independence. And I'm pretty unapologetic about that. I can invest time, money, and energy in things I really believe in without feeling I'm diverting my focus from any major priorities. My responsibilities as a husband or as a father, for instance. When God tells me to do something crazy or ridiculous, I don't necessarily have to convince anyone 
about the vision I had. Not to undermine the beauty of communication that comes in a marriage, but again, you can't just go doing your own thing. You gotta communicate. Now, let me be clear. I do wanna, um, I do want to be, excuse me, I don't wanna be where I am for the rest of my life per se. Do I wanna be 50 years old and move to London and then Sydney and then Paris, doing all of these visiting professorships, just kind of living this lifestyle where because I don't have like roots or I'm not necessarily settled, I'm just kind of living uh, with this transient experience? Probably not. But as someone who does tend to uh, value the merits of an independent lifestyle, I appreciate that season while um, I have it, although I don't feel inclined to commit to doing it the rest of my life. Yeah, you can call me a reluctant romantic. I have no qualms about that. That is entirely okay with me. That doesn't mean I'm uh, disinterested in romantic relationships. It does mean in the absence of them, I won't necessarily be disenchanted. Now, I remember last year, I had this thing where I wasn't really doing dates for a whole host of reasons I can't even get into right now. Um, the short of it was I wasn't in a place where I had the emotional fortitude to spend two plus hours with anybody. Um, I didn't even want to come to church half the time, to be honest. I did, but I didn't necessarily want to. Um... Love is hard work, people, romantic or otherwise. It's selfless and you got to be giving and you need to listen and consider and so many things. And these are all amazing biblical qualities. But you got to understand that's not for the faint of heart. And that's not the easiest thing to do in every season. You can't be dating someone or married to someone and just emotionally check out for 12 months because you're getting dragged in school and it's distressing you emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. That just wouldn't make sense. I remember this one time, um, I went out salsa dancing on a Saturday night and I started thinking about school and my heart literally started to sink into my stomach. I thought I was having a panic attack. Maybe I did have a panic attack. I've never had one before, so I don't know what it feels like, but I thought I was having a panic attack. No, I didn't have the emotional fortitude to spend two plus hours on a date with anybody. I was literally terrified. I would go on a date and 15 minutes in, my social battery, if you will, uh, will would just die. And then I would be this emotional wreck for the remainder of the day. But even if that didn't happen, um, I also get really weird when I'm not getting enough sleep which tends to be kind of a recurring experience in a PhD program. I mean, I get really weird, even by my own standards, when I'm not getting enough sleep. I just didn't have it in my tank to give in the capacity of a date for over two hours. You know, it makes me wonder how people in advanced degree programs approach romantic relationships. There's much to say about that, but I'll uh, make that the focus, at least in part, um, of a Valentine's Day special for a future date. For now, I'll offer a different kind of commentary on cuffing season. Can I be honest with you? Just for a second. Man, I love an intelligent woman. 
even to my fault sometimes. It's true. I'm a nerd, unapologetically so, in fact. I really appreciate learning, and I really appreciate people who can teach me things. Dag, she's cute, and she's schooling me right now. Mercy. Sometimes I have to catch myself. I'm like, wait a minute. You don't know anything about this woman. You don't even know if she's about the Bible. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. I usually check myself before I wreck myself. The Holy Spirit makes sure I'm not out here acting crazy. Hashtag conviction is real. But it's just fascinating to me because I feel like at so many points over the past year, I've had conversations with sisters in Christ about, air quotes, timid men. The question is usually something along the lines of, would you be intimidated by an intelligent uh, and or a highly successful woman? Now, the irony of that is I have a strong preference for an incredibly bright woman. Now, let me be clear, because I'm doing a Ph.D., so people take things out of context all the time. I don't think where you went to school or how many degrees you have or the job you work necessarily equates to intelligence. Rather, I think it's evidenced by a general capacity to learn and a healthy interest in doing so. Um, beyond that, now it's particularly appealing if it's a well-rounded combination of knowledge rather than being limited to just one domain, if you will. The latter isn't quite as interesting, in my humble opinion. Kudos if you can bring up all of these things that you're well knowledgeable in and versed in uh, up in a stimulating discussion over dinner at your favorite joint. Yeah, that's the ticket. Coincidentally, there's a lot of research showing that competent women are liked less, at least in the context of work. Now note, this is truer in male-dominated professions. Being a competent school teacher and being a competent lawyer are perceived very, very differently. That means exactly what it sounds like. Now, if you're a woman and you're highly competent, both men and women at work tend to like you less. While there's much to say about that, it wouldn't surprise me if that generalizes to some extent in the context of dating. Now, if that's true, many men may, perhaps, gravitate towards a woman they feel smarter than. The opposite may be true, too. Competent women may be avoided by male suitors, perhaps especially so when they're competent in things women aren't expected to be competent in, like medicine or law or engineering, for instance. Either way, though, I think guys are missing out. I think intelligent women are absolutely wonderful. But I already told you I'm partially characterized as a reluctant romantic, so that means I may be less subject to social norms than the average guy. In other words, I'm probably not representative of most men. Speaking of norms, though, makeup usually ends up being a point of discussion, too. When I converse with women about preferences and things of that uh, nature, which, again, tends to happen a lot around cuffing season. To lipstick or not to lipstick? Is that the question? For me, it's difficult to know if this is a question about femininity or if this is a question on what I'm attracted to, or maybe both. Now, interestingly, in the social psychology field, 
they tend to be highly correlated anyway. That is, women that are rated higher on femininity also tend to be rated higher on physical attraction as well. The question then becomes if a woman elected to present herself in a less stereotypically feminine way, i.e. makeup and lipstick and hairstyle and heels and dresses and all that sort, how would that affect her dating prospects? I'll share some general thoughts before weighing in with my own personal opinion. Here's an idea. I think men are very responsive to what they see and women are very responsive to what they feel. That needs to be unpacked at the risk of somebody throwing a spear at me. In no way am I attempting to make a generalization. These aren't mutually exclusive. Men obviously feel and women obviously see. But it's unmistakable. Men respond to the visual cues they have and they're very sensitive to them. Or maybe they place a premium on things that just happen to be visual. I'll get to that shortly. The result is most men emphasize physical attraction beyond physical body type, like your waist and your hips and obviously a lot more. I do think this also includes other features like does she wear makeup and lipstick and dresses and heels, etc. Absolutely. Now, on the other hand, I don't know if women feel as strongly a need to date a man who looks like a model or dresses like a model for that matter, although that could be appealing. Maybe part of that is because men can enhance their dating prospects with things like status and money and dominance and you know obviously personality and things like that, but that's not necessarily as true for women. Beyond that, though, it's also possible women emphasize personality and intimacy maybe to a greater extent than men do. It's a question. I don't know if that's true, but it's possible. My personal opinion is even if a woman is, air quotes, out of a man's league, and I use that term liberally because I don't know if I subscribe to that kind of thinking, but even if a woman is out of a man's league, if he can make her laugh and make her smile on a consistent basis, that has the potential to go a very long way. That's part of intimacy, how you make people feel. I don't know if I think the same is as true for women though. I don't know if making a man smile improve your odds with that man all that much. Men are very sensitive to their visual cues or elect to focus considerably on them. Now there are many reasons for this, social and psychological, etc etc that doesn't mean intimacy isn't important of course intimacy is important for men but again they just seem to respond a lot to what they see now to that end i do think you can be penalized depending on the man for how you choose to present yourself while i tend to put makeup in a different category because i think a lot of men have different opinions about something like that I suspect men will have more convergence in preferences on things like dresses and heels and hair, maybe lipstick, etc. My personal thoughts, as far as attraction goes, an attractive woman is going to look attractive in almost everything in her closet. 
It could be a really pretty dress, or it could be a pair of sweatpants from college. Baby, if you got it, you got it. I think knowing how to dress, i.e., I really want to wear something nice tonight and I know just the outfit, is more important than how a woman may choose to dress, i.e., I feel like I need lipstick and heels every single time I walk out the door. But it's possible that's my male privilege speaking because I, as a man, tend to have that luxury. I know how to dress, but I may not necessarily choose to dress well on every, uh, in, a, in every given situation. I try and be open-minded, but to be honest, that probably says more about me than it says about men. Finally, there's all the hubbub and fuss about women who can cook versus women who can't. Indeed, many women feel that part of their liberation from men is freeing themselves of the expectation of culinary competence. I might go as far as to say women feel stigmatized because of their lack of ability in the kitchen. Some women, anyway. Uh, so let's talk about lasagna. I'll start with the practical first. As a 26-year-old single black male PhD student that knows how to cook, feel free to take my perspective with several grains of salt. Pun intended. Steph Curry is an accomplished basketball player, right? He plays for the Golden State Warriors, and he's a phenomenal three-point shooter. Even so, Steph, who happens to shoot 42% uh, in terms of three-point shooting percentage, has several other three-point shooters on the team. He has Kevin Durant, who shoots 42%. He has Klay Thompson, who shoots 44%. Cook Quinn, who shoots 44%. This is all this season, by the way, I think 2018 to 2019. So those numbers might vary a little bit. Uh, but he has several three-point shooters on his team. If the situation should arise where the team is in a bind and they need a three-pointer, Steph has pretty good flexibility about whether or not he needs to take the shot. Although he's probably the best shooter on the team. But he has options. The sole burden doesn't rest on him. Now, alternatively, Steph could be traded to another team tomorrow, where he's the only three-point shooter. In such a situation, in addition to responsibilities in dribbling the ball up and down the court and passing the ball to different teammates, which is what a point guard obviously does, he would now bear the full weight of three-point shooting for the entire team. Now, that could work but he'd probably want to trade off some of his other responsibilities. That's how I tend to feel about the matter of cooking, at least as it pertains to gender roles anyway. Honestly, it would be much better if both me and my girlfriend or fiance or wife could both cook. But if she can't, it's not a deal breaker. It just means most of that is gonna fall on my shoulders. So we'll probably need to swap out some responsibilities. Maybe you do the grocery shopping indefinitely because i'm going to be doing the cooking indefinitely it would be nice if she can learn though like no i ain't trying to meal prep every week for the next 50 years of my life that's a lot of work to do for just one person but now you're talking about meal prep for an entire family dag that's a lot of work and she can't cook so she's not helping <laughs> but honestly my previous observations are probably the least interesting part of our discussion on lasagna. 
Now, my personal hypothesis on why we keep having this conversation on women uh, cooking is more along the lines of market signaling, a theory used heavily in the economics, sociology, and economic sociology literature. Early work by economists suggested that market signals could be used to assist audience members, i.e. people in the dating market, with recognition. Now, the theory further argues that entities, in this case women, can signal qualities that are otherwise difficult to observe through investing in signals, like learning to cook. That would be difficult to signal. And audience uh, members can use that to screen different participants in the market. So basically, a signal just helps a market to operate more efficiently. The idea is simple enough, right? A high school graduate may invest in a college degree to signal that they're smart and ready to learn. And so employers can take note that they have a college degree and they may make these inferences about them. A small business might seek accreditation from the Better Business Bureau to signal that they're a legit business operation. I might list on a dating website that I have a condo in a really expensive neighborhood to signal I have a stable job. I'm responsible and I'm ready to settle down. Note, these are all qualities that are somewhat difficult to observe. That's why you need a signal. Not surprisingly, we see work on market signaling in a number of different fields, including work in biology, political science, sociology, psychology, management, and other fields too. I think one of the reasons men, perhaps especially conservative men, prefer a woman who can cook is because cooking is used as a market signal. Indeed, there is information asymmetry in the dating market. If I want to date you, you always have more info about yourself than I do. So that creates information asymmetry. So signals are actually very important because they help in communicating information. And everybody can't obtain a signal. Everybody can't get a college degree. Everybody can't learn to cook, right? So in the case of cooking, you can use that as a signal that you are proficient in domestic affairs. And it can uh, distinguish you from women who maybe can't cook. Now, a man may see that a woman can cook and also infer, man, she's going to be a great mom. I'm sure she knows how to keep a clean house and all these other things. Now, while this may or may not be true, it doesn't have to be 100% accurate to operate as a signal. Now, I know that some of you are probably thinking, this seems a little bit far-fetched. My man just likes to eat. I'm not signaling anything to him. This is just really over the top. Maybe, but maybe not. It wouldn't be the first time we use market signals in the dating market. Signaling is a pretty versatile theory. Case in point, for instance, for many, many centuries, dancing has been viewed as a signal of sexual prowess. Scholars in psychology, anthropology, art history, comparative literature, communication, and more have been studying that for decades. Don't let me make you feel bad if you like men or women who can dance. There's nothing wrong with that. But trust me, there are a lot of researchers that are interested in why that appeals to you. The swaying of the hips, the body control, the graceful elegance, the flexibility and dexterity, certainly confidence on the part of the dancer plays a part as well. Plus, whatever chemistry may be shared by dancing with someone as a dancer, I 
feel a lot of chemistry when I dance with people. Um, or even you might even feel a connection watching them dance, right? No matter how you slice it up, there is a case for market signaling. A psychologist would say, excuse me, a psychologist would say you have an idiosyncratic preference for a partner who can dance. An anthropologist would say we have a culture that values dance and that's reflected in how we elect partners. An economist would say dating is a competitive market and we therefore optimize our utility by seeking the most appealing mate we can secure. That offers the most features, dancing included. A sociologist would say that dance improves our social esteem within society. And therefore, it makes sense to learn to dance and seek a mate that can dance too. A biologist would say that dancing as a mating ritual is evolutionarily functional, as it can be used during the courtship process and ensures the livelihood of the species of organisms. Did I leave anything out? Realistically, it's probably a combination of all of the above. None of these really are mutually exclusive. But back to lasagna. Is it really so far-fetched to say that cooking is a signal in the dating market? Well, it depends what your definition of the word is, is. If there is a moral to the story, I think it's that whether or not you can make lasagna and how you make your lasagna can actually be pretty important. Even if we can't clearly articulate or agree as to why. None of this is meant to operate like the laws of nature, though. For the most part, it's all pretty fluid. It's the beauty of the social sciences. Feel free to weigh in. Just some more random thoughts.